Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast, or welcome for the very first time. My name is Craig Hadley and I'm one of the pastors here in Redlands, California. And we are a church that creates sermons that are designed to start discussions and not end them. I want to say a special thank you to our donors who support this podcast and this church by donating at paradoxgiving.com. Thank you for the generosity you show us week in and week out. We are continuing our series in biblical contradictions, and today we're looking at a contradiction between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this teaching is entitled, The Gospel Contradiction. an idea out there that the Bible contains answers. And these answers are very clear and obvious. And when you ask questions, you can go to the good book and discover the answers that God would have you know. So I'd like to try that today. I would like for us to go to the Bible and ask a question seeking an answer. The question I want to ask today is this, what events led to Jesus Christ being crucified? So with that question, we turn to the New Testament and we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about what events led to the crucifixion of Jesus. We read in Luke 19, Mark 11, and Matthew 21 that about a week before his death, Jesus rode into town on a donkey as people waved palm branches from him. And when he rode into town, he rode in from the east. Now, this is a big deal because this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah, which is why these three authors make a point that Jesus rode in on a donkey. Now, in the very next verse in each of those books, we read about songs that the people sang as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Matthew says that they sang Hosanna to the son of David. Mark says they sang Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke 19 tells us, that they sang, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. So while they cannot quite agree on the lyrics or the song they sang, they all agree that the people were singing as Jesus rode on a donkey. After arriving at Jerusalem, the three accounts tell us that different amounts of time passed, but they all agree what happened next. Jesus goes to the temple and he is disgusted by what he sees. The priests are making huge profits on the guilt of the people of Jerusalem and Judea. They are charging exorbitant prices for people to offer sacrifices to God and seek reconciliation with the divine. Not only that, but the high priest is not voted on and selected by the people of Jerusalem, but instead is one who is able to approach the government of Rome and by his position. To make matters worse, the high priest profits an immense amount on the backs of the Jewish people. This extortion fills Jesus with rage. And according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he leads a riot in the temple. He overturns tables. He drives out those who were selling things there. He destroys merchandise because he is so disgusted by the fact that this religious monopoly would tax its own people all in the name of God. After driving people out 
who are making money at the temple. Jesus then turns and he begins to teach. Now, Matthew and Luke let us know that this teaching went on for days. He's led a riot and these days that follow, he is preaching some explosive ideas. And these ideas combined with the riot he just led causes the people who are in charge of the temple to become very angry with him. Quite understandably, right? And from there, everything is set in motion for Jesus to eventually be arrested, tried, and then crucified a few days later. So we ask the question, what events led to Jesus Christ being crucified? And while Matthew, Mark, and Luke disagree on some specifics, they all agree on three major events that led to his crucifixion. Number one, Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the manner that Zechariah prophesied. Number two, Jesus started a riot against the authority of the temple. And number three, Jesus then taught rebellious ideas for days until he was arrested and then crucified. This is the account of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are united in their answer to what led to Jesus' crucifixion. There's just one problem with this story, and that problem has a name. And that problem's name is John. Because in John's gospel, he essentially says to the other three gospel writers, mm, that's not how I remember it. To which I picture Luke saying, Ugh, not now, John. And Matthew saying, your memory is terrible. And Mark saying, are we really doing this again? Because John tells a very different story about Jesus clearing the temple and also about what events led to Jesus being crucified. John's gospel opens in chapter one with Jesus being baptized. Shortly after being baptized, we turn to chapter two, where Jesus commits his first miracle, which is turning water into wine. After turning the water into wine, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for Passover and he is disgusted by what he sees, and so he clears the temple. Now, interestingly enough, it is only in John's gospel that he mentions that Jesus had a whip and drove them out of the temple with a weapon. Now, if you're like me, you're surprised to read about the clearing of the temple in John chapter 2, because you assume this will be a very short gospel if Jesus is just days away from Jesus' own death. But John's gospel tells a different story. While the temple officials are mad with Jesus for clearing the temple, they respond with ultimate indifference. They do not try to arrest him or seek to kill him after he has cleared the temple. It's almost like they watch this riot and these rebellious ideas being taught and they say, hmm, what a fascinating display of emotion, Jesus. Please tell us why you feel this way. And then they let him walk out scot-free after leading a riot on their institution. Well, as we continue to read the Gospel of John, two years pass. Jesus has committed six more miracles after water into wine at the wedding. And his seventh miracle is the raising of his friend Lazarus from the dead. Upon raising him from the dead, there are the chief priests who hear about this Jesus from Nazareth who is raising people from the dead and they freak out. 
In John chapter 11, they are talking to themselves and they say, what are we to do? This man, Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. The narrator then tells us, so from that day on, the chief priests planned to put Jesus to death. Now, in the very next chapter, Jesus gets a donkey and rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And from there, he goes straight to the Last Supper. He is then eventually arrested and then tried and then crucified. So if we ask John what events led to Jesus Christ being crucified, John would respond that the answer is the miracles of Jesus, particularly the resurrection of Lazarus, threatened the religious leaders, which led to their plot to arrest and kill Jesus. So here we have four different gospel stories about the life of Jesus. If we ask them all, at the same time, the question, what events led to Jesus Christ being crucified, John would shout his divinity, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke would shout his humanity. And just when we think that's plenty confusing, the Roman Empire would hear these four men shouting at each other and arrive on the scene and say, no, 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 quiet, quiet down, all four of you are wrong. That's not the reason Jesus was crucified. We know the reason Jesus was crucified. And the Roman Empire would tell us that they tell everyone when someone is crucified why they were being crucified. Because Rome obviously wanted to send a message. Now, the way Rome did this was they put a literal message on top of every cross of every person they crucified. And Jesus' cross was no exception. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all acknowledge the sign that Rome placed on the top of Jesus' cross. And while they can't necessarily agree on the exact wording, the overall idea is that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. And when you live in the Roman Empire, you knew that anytime you claim to be a king, well, that claim would then be punishable by death in the Roman society. So when we ask the question, what events led to Jesus Christ being crucified? We hear from Rome, we hear from John, and we hear from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the only correct answer to this question is, well, that depends on who you ask. <laughs> there is no clear answer to this question. And while I laugh at the fact that we ask a very simple, objectifiable question before the Bible and we come back with, well, that depends on who you ask, I want you to know that if you find yourself greatly annoyed with this answer or even troubled by this answer, it's because you and I live in the era of misinformation. We are bombarded with fake news, with uncertain truths, with people touting unscientific claims as scientific all the time. And when we want a historical answer to a question, we find that when the answer comes back, well, kind of depends on who you ask because they all have different opinions. It just rings hollow because of the misinformation world that we live in right now. 
for instance, living in America today, we experience this on a regular basis when we ask a basic historical question. Was the Civil War in America fought over the institution of slavery? Because there has been for some time, and there currently is to this day, people who respond by saying, well, that depends on who you ask. Stop it. It does not depend on who you ask. The fact is very simple that the Civil War was fought over the institution of slavery. And so the answer, well, that depends on who you ask, is entirely unacceptable for this question. Which is why the answer, well, that depends on who you ask, seems so troubling when it's the answer we give to the question, what events led to Jesus Christ being crucified? Why is the answer, well, that depends on who you ask, an acceptable answer for the events of the crucifixion and an entirely unacceptable answer for the American Civil War? To answer that question, I'd like for us to go on an imaginary field trip to Washington, D.C., and imagine that we are walking along the Mall of the Smithsonian, as well as another building in that area. Not only that, but because you attend Paradox, you know that you have a thing for maps. You love maps. You love looking at maps. And so you are at the Smithsonian and you think to yourself, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go see some maps. So let's go into the first museum we encounter and see what map they show us. We would go to the American History Museum, walk in and ask a docent, excuse me, do you have any maps? And they may show you a map that is over 200 years old. This map, the docent says to you, is one of the earliest maps we have of Lewis and Clark's expedition shortly after they returned from their two-and-a-half-year journey across the United States. And as we look at this map, we may feel two things at once. The first thing is how accurate the map is despite the fact that they did not have modern technology to map it all out. The second thing we might feel is a sense of loss as we consider whose land this was before these white explorers tromped all over it and whether or not things may have been different with a little bit more heart and compassion from the U.S. government. After looking at that map and reflecting on its implications for some time, we would then thank the docent and walk out blinking as we stepped into the sun. We'd then go to our second museum, which is the Air and Space Museum. We'd walk in through its front doors and we'd be welcomed by a docent and we'd tell the docent, we really like maps. Do you have any maps here at the Air and Space Museum? And the docent may show you a map, which is a satellite image of the United States of America. Now, there's not a lot of detail in this map, but ultimately the map informs you of what the overall ecology is of the United States of America. Not only that, but it is humbling to see the USA without any borders drawing around it and realizing that it's just a piece of land like all of the other pieces of land around it. There is something humbling about this map because we realize that very few humans in history have been able to gaze at the land they walk on from this viewpoint 
And it is only very recently that we've understood just how tiny our nation is. After taking a few moments to look at this satellite image, we would thank the docent very much and then walk back out into the sunlight. Now we may go down across the street and come to the Smithsonian's Museum of Postal History. Yes, this really exists. And we would walk into the Postal Museum and ask the docent, excuse me, do you have any maps? And the docent would be elated to say, yes, yes we do. We have a map from the late 18th century that details the postal routes and how we got around all the way back in the 18th century and shared mail across the nation. Now it's here that we would look at this map and there'd be something of reverence that would stir inside us as we looked at the intricacies and the amount of detail that had to be paid attention to in order to transport mail in the 18th century. It was a remarkable achievement back then, just like it is a remarkable achievement now. After taking a few moments, we would then thank the docent and then go back outside. We would then go to the Library of Congress. And when we arrived at the Library of Congress, we would walk in and ask the librarian, do you have any maps? And the librarian would direct us immediately to Google and say, this is the most accurate map that humanity can offer. Now you would say to the librarian, I appreciate that, but do you have any printed maps? And she might smile and say, oh yes, we do, right this way. And she would hand you an old fashioned map printed on paper, detailing the highways that stretch across the nation. Now it wasn't too long ago that this was a marvel of communication and engineering because it communicated to you how you could get to anywhere in the country if you just followed the proper road signs. And while this cartography not too long ago represented the very latest in technology, there is something that feels a bit dated about it, even though the map is up to date. After taking a few moments, we would then thank the librarian, step back outside, and return to the Smithsonian for our final stop, the American Art Museum. Once we step inside, we would look at the nearest docent, approach them and say, excuse me, I know this is an art museum, but do you have any maps? The docent would smile and say, oh, we have the most famous map in the history of American art. Nam June Pike's art piece electronic superhighway. The docent would then lead you to the glowing neon fluorescent installation, which has all kinds of video screens, all advertising different things that occur in the different 50 states. These video screens are then outlined by fluorescent tubes and it glows and hums and flashes. It is ostentatious. It is loud. It is larger than life but it's still a map. And as you look at Namjoon Pike's electronic superhighway, you think to yourself only one thought. I've never seen a map like this before. And after taking a moment to soak in the unique experience before you, you thank the docent, step outside, and reflect on your trip. 
You think about the five different museums you've visited and the five different maps that you took in. And as you are sitting there, somebody comes up to you and starts talking to you. They ask about what you've been doing with your day and you said, oh, I've just gone crazy with maps. I love looking at maps. And the person looks at you and then they ask a rather odd question. Which map, they ask, was the most correct? Now this is a strange question because you've never really thought of maps this way. But all of a sudden you start thinking that the most accurate map is the best map. And you start going through and you're like, well, I guess the satellite image would be, well, unless you needed to drive somewhere, then the roadmap would be, but that's probably out of date. So Google may be better, but then is a current map really more correct than the map the postal service used in the 18th century to guide their postal routes? And then you start thinking about it and your response to this question is, well, all of them are correct. And as you think about it some more, you say, oh, but I would know that there's a way that they could be incorrect. Let's imagine that we walked into the Air and Space Museum and we asked the docent to see a map and they say, oh, right this way. And they walk you over to a map of the 18th century postal routes that the Postal Service used 200 years ago. You would say to yourself, what? <laughs> what is this doing in the Air and Space Museum? The, the postal workers were on the ground. Let's imagine you walked into the American Art Museum and the first thing you saw was a giant map from 1994 detailing which interstate you need to take to get from Texas to Ohio. What if you went to the Library of Congress and you said, I'm trying to plan a road trip from Texas to Ohio. Can you give me a map? And they showed you Pike's art piece, Electronic Superhighway. There's no way you're finding your way to Ohio from Texas with that thing. <laughs> so you realize that while the question is strange, which of the maps was the most correct? You can imagine a world in which the maps are incorrect. And that has less to do with the map and more to do with the building that houses the map. I tell you this because the museum housing the map directly impacts our experience with each map. So when we go to the American Art Museum and we see Pike's art piece, Electronic Superhighway, we say to ourselves, that is the correct map for this building. Not only that, but we're not really concerned with whether or not the boundary lines of the states are correct as long as they give us the impression that we can recognize the map of the United States because it's an art piece. However, we feel very differently when we go over to the American History Museum and they show us a map of which states supported slavery and which states did not right before the Civil War began. And we expect it to be 100% accurate because this is history in a museum we're talking about. The museum housing the map impacts our experience with the map. So when we walk into an art museum, we have different expectations for what's inside and what a map will look like than when we walk into a history museum. Keep that difference in mind as we return to our original question. What events led 
to Jesus Christ being crucified. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they would say it's his actions at the temple. John disagrees and says, no, 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 it was his resurrection of Lazarus. While Rome disagrees with everyone else and says, no, it's his claim to be king. These are three very different answers to a very straightforward question. Now, these answers were given sometime around the year 70 CE to, well, it could be as late as 120 CE. You know, 40 or 50 years after the life of Christ, all the way up until 90 years after the life of Christ. Now, these writings existed and they were passed around and copied. And some people started putting these gospels next to each other, even though the writers never had the intention of them being placed in the same collection. Well, as the centuries went by, there were different theologians and then there were different church councils that began to publish lists of what a New Testament in the Bible might look like. Now, it's very mysterious how this New Testament came into being, but there were councils and debates. There were authors and theologians who all felt that different books should be included and different books should be excluded. This was a very fluid list until somewhere in the 4th or 5th century CE, you know, three or 400 years after the life of Christ, that the 27 books we have today were widely accepted in Christianity as the biblical New Testament. And here's what's stunning about the Christian tradition. They had a real opportunity to pick just one book of the Bible to represent the entirety of of the life of Jesus Christ. But instead, they looked at four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they said to themselves, huh, it's almost like the story of Jesus is better with all of these stories of Jesus rather than just one of them. Now, there are other writings on the life of Jesus out there. A lot of the writings did not make the cut for various reasons. And while we will discuss those one day, what's important to remember for our discussion today is that the church had the opportunity to pick just one book of the Bible to represent the entirety of the life of Jesus. This one book would have been the authority on who Jesus was and who Jesus was not. And if they selected the Gospel of John and pitched the other three, got rid of them, then we could very simply answer the question, what event led to Jesus being crucified? But that's not what the church did. Instead, the church did something rather stunning. The church felt that multiple, imperfect, human perspectives more fully portray the life of Jesus than a singular, unified, authoritative narrative. Yeah, the church said, why don't we keep all four? Sure, they contradict each other, but who cares? Who cares if they contradict each other? We hope that people will know it's more important to include multiple perspectives than to accept easy answers. Now, if we look at that idea, multiple imperfect human perspectives, my question to you is, what does that sound like architecturally? Because the answer for me 
is that this is an art museum and not a history museum. Imagine that you are going to walk into an art museum and someone said you're going to see four paintings from four different artists about the life of Christ. Well, what would you expect to see? Would you expect to see the exact same painting four times? Or would you expect to see four very different paintings, even though they're all painting the same subject? The answer is, of course, B, because we're walking into an art museum. And so when the church tradition decided that they were going to include these four imperfect human perspectives on the life of Christ, they were essentially saying the Bible is an art museum, not a history museum. This was the prevailing idea for 1,300 years until along came a man named Charles who published a book called The Origin of the Species. Now, this book really worked up some people in Princeton, New Jersey, and a few decades later, they invented the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy is the belief that the Bible cannot be wrong, and it was invented in New Jersey in the 19th century. And when they claimed that the Bible was a reliable source without error and without compromise in the way it purported history, they basically said that the Bible can accurately tell us how things happened a long time ago. This describes a history museum, not an art museum. So imagine there's this art museum that contains the four Gospels. And each of these four Gospels are unique and beautiful expressions of how humans perceived the life of Jesus Christ. This art museum lasted for over a thousand years. And then all of a sudden, these academic bigwigs from New Jersey showed up, looked at the art pieces and said, all of these art pieces are correct and saying the same accurate thing. They then take the art pieces from the art museum drag them over to the history museum, and they say, see, this is history. The doctrine of inerrancy took the Bible out of a theological art gallery and placed the Bible in a theological history museum. And what happened was they took the diversity of the Bible that is exposed by the contradictions and tried their best to convince the world that even though they're different, they're all saying the same thing. The equivalent of that would be taking the beautiful diversity you find in an art museum and replacing each painting with the same one. Oh, can you imagine going to an art gallery and seeing the same painting hanging on every wall? That, my friends is what the doctrine of inerrancy does to the beautiful human perspectives of the Bible. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, so what? What does this actually matter? The reason this actually matters is because there is this idea that the church is being the most honoring of the tradition when they follow the words of the Bible to a literal T. But when we look at the fact that 2,000 years ago, 
There was this strong sense that the story of Jesus was better with multiple perspectives, even if those multiple perspectives contain contradictions. Then we realize that the tradition is much more progressive and inclusive than we originally believed it to be. Deep in the heart of our tradition is the belief that multiple imperfect human perspectives are the best way to understand God. And the more that we listen to people who share their story from outside of our tribe, the more we can learn about God. The doctrine of inerrancy tends to lead us to view other people outside of our religion with suspicion. But the tradition of Christianity says, no, 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 no. It is only when you have multiple perspectives that you can fully appreciate who God truly is. On a very practical level then, this teaches us something about how we live today. You right now are living your life at a very unique time in history. No one has ever tried to be you ever in the history of this universe. <laughs> and you're here. You're doing it. You're doing your best to try and understand what is true, what is beautiful, how you can believe that it is good to be alive despite all of the suffering around you, and you are trying your best to hold it together while also simultaneously killing it. All that I have described is what we call your story. And when we look at the fact that the Bible is more concerned with the stories of people who experience God than the accuracy of who God is, it is then that we realize that telling our story is the biblical tradition. Being able to understand what we experience and to communicate that with another is living a biblical life. And to be able to say, yeah, I know that that works for you, but it doesn't work for me. Oh, there's so much power in that statement, right? I will tell you, there are books of the Bible that speak very little to me. And when I'm able to own that, I'm able to then lean in close and say, what you have to understand, there are some books that speak volumes to me today and are some of the most inspired pieces of literature I have ever encountered. And look, you may use religious language as you tell your story to yourself and to others, but I want you to know that you don't have to use religious language. That's not what we're talking about. Instead, whenever you experience something that you believe to be true and you weave it into your story, you realize that that story is what the biblical account is after. Your story and how you tell it matters. And equally important is listening to another story matters. The more we are able to see God from our own perspective and from perspectives that are not our own, the more we can grow in love in the midst of a chaotic world. Every week at Paradox, we invite people to share their celebrations and lamentations. While this may seem trivial or it may seem important to you, 
The reason behind all of this is because we are here to help you tell your story and also here to help you to listen to another's story. And our hope is that in the midst of the joys and the heartaches that we all experience, that we can testify to what we know to be true and with our collective stories, be able to better understand God so that we can be more loving and make peace with this unsettling world. My friends, may your story inspire another and may another story inspire you. And may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all and then tell the world about that story. 